Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harris and Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door and let's chat about art, architecture, history, real estate, and more. Let's jump in. The steadfast and stately family butler, the giggles and gossip of the young chambermaids, the dapper driver of the sleek shadowy sedan, the jovial cook who could rate her own Michelin star. These are the stereotypes we commonly hold about household servants influenced by popular television series and romantic films. The magical mystique that surrounds the wealthy now also extends to those who serve them. But is it really a fairy tale of domesticated bliss between servant and master, a love story of loyalty and extended familial bonds? We dive deep into the world of domestic service with the renowned industry leader and former butler, Charles McPherson. So join us as we come clean as we go behind the scenes of the hired help. When you hear the term upstairs, downstairs, you might automatically think of the much beloved 1970s British television show, which presents the life of servants and their wealthy masters living in London, England in the early 20th century. My father loved that show. Oh, really? We didn't watch it in my house, but I know it was wildly popular. In fact, it was the most popular drama series on TV at the time, picking up 25 awards. It was even remade not too long ago. Wow. The term upstairs, downstairs is common in the United Kingdom, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's used to distinguish between two groups of people and the lives they lived, those who were wealthy living upstairs and those who were much less wealthy, in fact, poor, typically servants in the home who lived and worked downstairs where the kitchen was traditionally located. The term harkens back to Victorian times. So think about Downton Abbey, where the Crawley family lives on the upper levels while the household servants spent a good portion of their time downstairs, where they also ate their meals. Although the staff works upstairs during the entire series, the Crawley family, usually only the women, wandered down to the lower levels, maybe a handful of times. The separation between the two worlds is very, very well defined. Do you remember on Downton Abbey, the driver, Tom Branson, who fell in love with Lady Sybil? Yeah. 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 One of the Crawley daughters. They eventually married, so he made it up to the upper fold. But I doubt that happened all too often. There really was a class system in Britain at the time, and some would would argue that there still is. Depending on what class you were born into, it could determine where you lived, your occupation, and who you married even. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, though, that the lives lived of the lower classes or the downstairs folk is now being explored in more detail. It has been often overlooked and overshadowed by the glamour of the wealthy, opulent lives that are being lived upstairs. It is interesting. In recent years, the story of the domestic staff and servants have become the focus of many books, television and movies, diving a little deeper into the lived experiences of these people. And rightly so. It took so many people to keep these aristocratic homes running. Remember at the time there was no hot water or electricity in those early years? Sounds like fun. (laughs) That required a lot of behind the scenes labor to keep those old stone houses warm and toasty. Yeah, no convenient foods too. Everything was made from scratch. Yeah, no Uber Eats or frozen entrees at that time. 
Okay, so tell me, are you team upstairs or team downstairs? Uh, that's a tough question. Why do I have to choose? <laughs> I'm making you choose just for the moment. Okay, well, I think I am more of a team downstairs. I have worked in service and I'm currently the maid, chauffeur and cook in my house. You too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You love a good underdog though, I know, don't you? Yeah, I really do. So yeah. are you saying you're team upstairs, Walker? Yeah, I'm going to be the meanie. I'm going to be team upstairs right now. I I am obsessed not only with the architecture and the decor and the fashion, but I'm also fascinated with the social history and the dynamics between the upstairs and downstairs. And like you, I love to have one foot in one world and one in the other. So do you think you could have hacked it? as a 19th century servant? That's a good question. I am a very hard worker, as you know, mm -hmm. and will always do what it takes to provide for my family. But to be perfectly honest, we all know that my life as a serving wench at medieval times was very short-lived. I'm not really that great at being told what to do. <laughs> As noted by Charles McPherson in his book, The Butler Speaks, the life as a servant was very, very difficult. Servants typically work 17 hours per day and six and a half days a week. Wow. Mr. McPherson says that most people who went into private service, they did this because, you know, it would give them access to daily fresh food and housing. Yeah. Pamela Sambrook has recreated a typical household timetable, which will give you a really good idea of what life was like as a 19th century servant, including the responsibilities of various household staff. Wow, that sounds super interesting. Did you know that polishing silver was a job typically assigned to men? Really? Maybe it's because of all the elbow grease needed to polish silver, but that's always been my job, although I am not a fan but recently, my mom showed me a new trick that takes out all that necessary elbow grease. Oh, really? You're going to have to share. I will. The fact that you were an early riser would have worked to your advantage, though, Harris. The workday started between 6 and 7 a.m., and staff had to clean and prep the kitchen and get the fire started before the upstairs folk woke up. The curtains in the drawing room would need to be drawn back and shaken, and the fireplace cleaned, too. Now, Pamela Sandbrook says these rules would have been arduous. In the morning, she says that a junior housemaid was expected to rake out the fireplace and put ashes in her housemaid's box, light the fire, wash the hearthstone, and put the coal buckets out into the hallway for the footman to fill. She also takes any small rugs outside to shake at least twice a week. She hand brushes the carpets and turns over the edges and sweeps the wooden floor. As well as collecting the dust, it was also important to check the valuable items like earrings that may have been dropped. She then shuts up the room for 15 minutes while the dust settles and repeats this in the music or the sitting room. After the dust has settled, she also is expected to return to both rooms and vigorously rub the furniture using two cloths, one in each hand. That is really intensive work. And I have to say... At, when I was in Ireland, I had to clean the hearth of the rental before we left. And it is a big job. And that was not a big hearth. So just that alone is too much for me. But I'm thinking about that poor housemaid, if she had to be in my house and rub all the furniture with the pet hair I've got going on. Yeah, mine too. You'd also have to get up in the middle of the night if you wanted to fit in anything before your shift, like the way we do today, right? Yeah, absolutely. No room for me time like exercise or anything like that but I'm still thinking about all the dust those poor maids were forced to breathe in I bet it was pretty thick in those 
stone homes. Yeah, I would think so. I'm feeling a bit better, though, about my dusty old house, though. Oh, well, that's good, Walker. (laughs) That could be a good podcast pitch. You, too, could feel better about your house cleaning (laughs) abilities if you listen to At Home and Abroad. Exactly. You know, there are a few feature films, too, that illustrate this upstairs-downstairs concept. Yeah, do you remember that period piece that came out, I think it was 1993, called Remains of the Day? I do. I don't really remember the movie all that well, but I remember it was like a beautiful film. It had an emphasis on the personal life of the dedicated English butler played by Sir Anthony Hopkins, who I love. He had strong feelings for the housekeeper played by Dame Emma Thompson, who I also love. And loyalty was a key theme, probably true to what the aristocracy demanded of their servants. And in fact, just last year, the historical drama The Gilded Age was released, and this was also written and created by Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey. I haven't seen it, though. Have you? No, not yet. Um, Lately, I've been a bit preoccupied with a book called Upstairs and Downstairs, My Life in Service as a Lady's Maid, written by Hilda Newman and Tim Tate. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Hilda was 97 when the book was written. She was 19 years old when she began employment at Croom Court in Worcestershire Mm. (laughs) as a lady's maid to Lady Coventry in the, I think it was 1930, until the house was turned over to the War Department in 1939 with the outbreak of the war. I just want to stop you there, Walker, and say, good job on the word Worcestershire. Thank you. It's a tricky one. I practiced. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds like it might be really interesting. A firsthand account from downstairs. Absolutely. Hilda Newman passed away in 2018 at the age of 102. But her book, you know, it's really quite a contribution to the fabric of information relating to this topic. She had described herself as coming from a family which was respectable poor with standards that they stuck to. Mm. Yeah. And she remembers when she first arrived, she was amazed how her home that she grew up in could actually fit in her bedroom at Croom Court. Wow. Mm -hmm. She remembers that there was really a strict hierarchy downstairs with the scullery maid being at the lowest level. She also said that she was paid five shillings a week for her work as a lady's maid. And she described her employers as being incapable of making decisions like what to wear in the morning, simple things like that. And she was surprised when she was told by the lady at the house, your duties are to help me with anything I need. I shall require you to brush my hair one full hour in the morning and one half hour before dinner. Oh my God. It's a lot of brushing. That's a lot of hair brushing. (laughs) That's crazy. It sounds like torture. Seriously, could that even be good for your hair? No, I don't think so. I think it leads to brittleness. Yeah. I wonder why we like watching these relationships play out across class divides on the screen. For me, I think it's a bit of a sneak peek into a world which, for most, remains somewhat unimaginable and definitely out of reach. Perhaps we too can identify and sympathize with the downstairs world. Yeah, I feel a bit the same way. I just recently visited Blenheim Palace, the birthplace of Winston Churchill. It was really hard to imagine what it would have been like for Winston Churchill to play there as a child. The property is immense in the surrounding estate, just vast. I I personally haven't been to Highclere Castle where Downton Abbey is filmed, but I know you have. So maybe you can tell me what it was like. It was absolutely stunning. Mm. It's set just like you see in the series, in rolling pastures, fields of wildflowers, and those lovely follies. Do you know what follies are, Walker? No, I don't know the term. 
you'll know what they are when I tell you. They're those somewhat entirely useless buildings that complement the landscape design. Highclere Castle has several beautiful follies. One, the grotto is now let as a holiday cottage. And many follies in general, even some on Highclere Estate, are styled with Etruscan and ancient Roman designs like temples and that kind of thing. Well, now that you mention it, I do know what they are and I love them. I know, they're, <laughs> they're beautiful. Cute. They're sweet. They, do, they really enhance the gardens. The castle itself, again, is really just as you see on the television show. I dragged my entire family there in 2012, which is when London hosted the Olympics. And it, this was also at the height of Downton Abbey's popularity. It was just magical to wander through the same rooms where that drama was played out especially I loved just being on that staircase Mm. you know they're always pictured on that staircase it must have been a zoo though it must have been busy it was busy there were some tour buses of octogenarians that arrived just prior to us so my husband wasn't entirely thrilled but it was it was fantastic all around And I do want to say that Lady Carnarvon is an exceptionally wonderful keeper of of Highclere's history. Wow. Well, it's on my list of places to see. I'm not surprised to hear that there is a little cottage available on the property to stay in. Yeah, I think that's becoming more common, right? Yeah. The upkeep of these big, beautiful homes is extremely evolved and expensive. And a good number depend on people touring these properties and renting them for weddings and other private events. One such house, Summerleyton Hall, was built in the 17th century. It's owned by Hugh Crossley, the fourth Baron Summerleyton, and his family. Summerleyton Hall was featured in the Netflix hit series, The Crown, where it was used to depict um, the Royal Norfolk residence, Sangringham. Wow, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to go back and watch. I love that show. Well, if you visit, you can experience firsthand the upstairs way of life through a variety of private encounters offered there with their on-site chefs, teams of butlers and additional staff. And they also have accommodations, really beautiful accommodations, which you can reserve, uh, 12 stunning bedrooms, as well as some woodland and meadow cottages as well. Well, add that to my to-do list, Walker. (laughs) I may feel like part of the downstairs in my home, servicing my own family, but the upstairs experience would certainly be a nice break from the everyday. Yeah, I agree. This fascination with upstairs in particular isn't confined to one side of the Atlantic, though, I don't think is it. No, No, absolutely not. Domestic service plays a role in all class systems, but there are certainly commonalities across cultures. We are speaking today to Charles McPherson, a leader in the field, a person who himself served as a butler and an expert in the history and contemporary challenges of domestic service. We have the great honor today to speak with Charles McPherson, television and radio personality, author of four books, including The Butler Speaks and The Pocket Butler, as well as the founder of the Charles McPherson Academy. Welcome, Charles. Well, hello. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for being here today. So, Charles, over the past 20 years, you've successfully built a reputation as a global authority in domestic service and household management. And when I was reading your book, the first thing that I thought to myself, well, how does a young man born in Fort William, Canada, end up in this profession? Oh, my God. I love that question. That's a great question. And so the answer is actually really quite simple, and, and it is by mistake. Because, you know, I really had no plans to to really be in this career. I didn't really understand 
what it was. You know, you kind of see butlers in the movies and you think, you know, well, they're all kind of drunk and spilling the soup on people and stuff like that and sarcastic. But I didn't really understand what that was. And so it was about just being in the right place at the right time when, you know, one of Canada's, you know, famous families that every Canadian knows and loves. And the lady of the house, she offered me the job. And, you know, I'd had a hospitality training background, but I, you know, she said, don't worry, I'll train you. And so that's kind of really how I fell into it. And so that's, I think, what's interesting is that a lot of people in this profession, they tend to fall into it by accident. It's not generally by design. So that's exactly for me. It was, it was just all by accident, just being in the right place at the right time. And I think more importantly, knowing how to seize an opportunity when it was offered. Right. So were you setting up dinner parties when you were a young boy at home, that sort of thing, or <laughs> pushing your parents' furniture around and polishing silver? No, uh, my mother did all of that, <laughs> thank goodness. Um, but but I used to watch her and I used to sometimes help her. But uh, my family did a lot of entertaining. Um, it was Some of it was business, but it was primarily social entertaining um, and a lot of family things and so on and so forth. And, and everything is, is rather formal at, at my parents' house. And so that's just kind of the way I grew up. And so I just saw that. And, you know, even when we would just have dinner, when it was just us on a you know regular Tuesday night, it was still a formal dinner with a properly set table and everything. And it was just, I think, second nature to me. And so, you know, what I sometimes say is, you know, I think that perhaps I was a butler in a previous life, if there's such a thing as reincarnation, because it just felt so natural to me. But I don't know if it was because of my mother or because of such a thing. Interesting. Interesting. So in, in 1996, though, after almost a decade serving as a major domo for a prominent Canadian family, you founded CMA, which is a Charles McPherson Associates, which provides household management expertise to high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. How did those experiences lead you to founding the Charles McPherson Academy in 2009? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Academy. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear. So, well, first of all, I think the experiences of being not only in private service myself, but in in being in other people's homes, I really saw how homes were operating or or the problems of the homes. And my clients were always asking me to help them find staff. And so I kind of got in the staffing business by accident, you know, not on purpose. And then I realized that there was a lack of training and that, you know, staff just, you know, when we go back to the Edwardian and the Victorian era, you know, staff, you know, basically were trained because you did what your parents did. And so they trained you and then you went into service and kind of worked your way up and that doesn't exist anymore. And so I thought the only way that I'm going to be able to find people for my clients is to, to do as Isidore Sharp said, you know, hire for attitude, train for skill. And so find people with great attitudes and then be able to train them on their skills. And so that's kind of how the school really started. It wasn't really on purpose. Yeah, it just sort of evolved into that. Exactly, exactly. You're world renowned for your expertise in the field of domestic service and household management. You know, before I was reading your book, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, this must lead to a lot of international travel. And I can see on your Instagram, it does involve <laughs> a lot of international travel. It looks like you have a pretty great life there, Charles. But I never know if it's a badge of honor or a badge of stupidity <laughs> when you're you know, at the highest level of the airline clubs, you know, because of all the points that you've got. That's that's quite funny. Maybe a little bit of both sometimes, <laughs> probably, right? Probably, probably. <laughs> 
So tell me, are the expectations and etiquette consistent across borders? Or do you see cultural and societal variations from place to place when you travel? So there really are huge cultural differences. And I think that what's interesting is that although the world is becoming, you know, one global world and, you know, everyone knows what a Nike pair of shoes, running shoes is, or, you know, most people will know certain high-end fashions or whatever, just because of the global, the world and, and the internet and and, and how we, we've become with travel and so on. It's interesting that the, that cultures still are very, um, I, I guess the word I want to say is a very particular or specific, that's the word I'm looking for. They're still very specific to certain areas. Okay. And so, for example, you know, culturally, you know, in North America and Europe, you know, when you are, you know, going to nod your head in body language to say, yes, your head is going up and down. And when you're in, you know, in India, for example, it's going left and right, which to us means no. But for them, that's yes. So things like that, you know, change or just how you hand a business card in Asia, you know, you hand a business card with two hands. Um, where in North America, a business card doesn't have any value, and you just kind of toss it at someone across the boardroom table and say, here's my contact details. Or just how you address people, you know, is also, I think, very, you know, is very different culturally. And so some cultures, particularly in Asia, will have much more respect for elders compared to the Western uh, part of, of the world. And so it's interesting that although the world is becoming one with globalization, the cultures of the world still are staying very specific because I think it's what you're you're born into, it's what you grow up, it's what you know. And so cultures are hard to change. It's your roots. Exactly. And and so you never kind of really lose those roots. And so that's I think I mean, there is some people who evolve over time, of course, but I think that's predominantly why culture is staying the way it is, because it's, it's what you, you grow up with in your family and what you're used to. And so therefore you continue doing it as you get older. Mm -hmm. Like the, the traditions, the cultural Correct. traditions, you know, they exactly. stay rooted in, in how you operate your, your daily life. So I'm I curious, Charles, Yes. what ways has household management and the domestic service industry evolved and changed over time? And I know that's a big question, but maybe we could focus it perhaps from a European or North American lens? Well, it's actually a big question, but it's actually a small answer. Oh. Um, and so household management really hasn't changed in, in managing a household in the last 200 years, because we still manage a household the same way. The only difference in managing a household is the products that we use to clean or to maintain a household. You know, we still set a table the same way that they did 200 years ago. We still make a bed the same way that they did 200 years ago. We still fold towels the way they did 200 years ago. So it's interesting, you know, we still dust. You know, we still, you know, we didn't, they, I would say vacuum, when they didn't vacuum 200 years ago, it wasn't a vacuum. So there's the invention of the vacuum cleaner, but we're still dealing with dust. We're still washing floors. So what's interesting is that household management and repairs and, and entertaining hasn't really changed all that much except the products that we're using to do the job. That's such an interesting perspective. And I love that going back to, you know, what we were just talking about in terms of traditions, I think household management, it's a traditional service and function within the home. Yeah, I think you're, you're correct. And what I think is interesting though, is that if we look at the population as, as the middle-class grew, you know, by the second industrial revolution, and, and as we go into, you know, World War I and World War II, and the world really evolves, 
the mass market and the middle class now have to run homes mm -hmm. and they kind of struggle with it at first where you know when we go back into the edwardian victorian era the very beginning you know it was really only the gentry and and the nobility that that had you know large homes that were run by huge amounts of staff mm -hmm. and 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 the commoners you know they lived very poorly and they really suffered they didn't have homes the way you know we have homes today and so that's one part that has really evolved is is the fact that i think household management is now for more people uh, within their daily lives than right it's yeah i i can speak personally charles it's definitely <laughs> in my daily life <laughs> well yeah i mean you know most of yeah. us don't have you know the, the good fortune of having staff yeah. you know running around and you know when we think about you know 200 years ago the amounts of staff they had well first of all there was a huge amount of wealth but more importantly the amount of staff was needed because when you think of so let's just go to britain for example you know when you think of those big country houses and everything that you know we see in the movies of gosford park and so forth uh remains of the day there was no hot and cold running water there was no electricity there was you know people having to do all that stuff so it took huge amounts of staff and then you couldn't go to the grocery store and, and buy some you know a pre-cooked you know chicken you know on a tuesday night because you didn't feel like cooking you know someone had to 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 bring up the chicken you know on the farm and then you had to kill it and then you had to pluck it and then you had to cook it and so all that took huge amounts of staff so what's interesting is that modern convenience has actually really changed for us after the second world war because of the product the mass production of being able to produce for the war all that excess capacity really allowed us to start to produce the modern conveniences that all of us enjoy today absolutely so perhaps we can turn the tables for just a moment yes and consider how we can as either guests in a home or in our own homes or you know even outside the home in restaurants hotels etc how we can support the domestic service in our behavior the reason i ask that question charles is because i feel that uh, having worked in the service industry in the past, and I know um, Lauren has too, there sometimes isn't as much respect as there could be. And and I'm not sure how that maybe has changed recently since the pandemic, but how can we just as you know citizens of the world support domestic workers a little bit more positively? You know, that's that's a that's now that's a big question. Um yeah that I think has a big answer, but I think to try to, to keep it simple, I think it's about taking, taking, as opposed to looking at it as how do we deal with, you know, the service industry or domestic workers, is I think I would bring it back down to etiquette. And I would say, you know, what is the point of etiquette? And so as Letitia Baldridge taught me, etiquette is really about how you treat people. So how do you have breakfast at the breakfast table with your family and how do you speak to them? How do you talk to the bus driver on the way to work? How do you deal with your coworkers at the office? It's about making people feel comfortable and, and respecting them. And so I think that's where I would go back to when you're dealing with domestic workers and in the service industry. It's about being respectful. They're doing a job and it's not a demeaning job. It's just a job. I think unfortunately in North America, we don't tend to look at service jobs with value, where in European cultures, it's still considered valuable and it's considered still a career. So to be a waiter in Europe is not considered as a flunky, it's 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 an actual job that people respect. Mm -hmm. And here we don't in North America do that as we don't do that well. So I think it's about thinking about etiquette and thinking about how do we make other people feel and that they're providing a service for you. 
that's allowing you to enjoy your time in that establishment, whether you're in a bar or a restaurant or with your family or just by yourself or in a hotel, it doesn't matter where, but it's allowing you to have that that moment because of the service they're providing. And so just to try to think about them. Yeah, and maybe we can shift our perspective here in North America to to recognize the value of those people who support the luxuries and the lifestyle that we have, even if they aren't luxuries. It can be as easy as just saying a sweet hello to the bus driver as you're headed off to to work. I think that's a, a critical point for our listeners today. And as much as I want to believe and that, you know, we need to try to change perhaps a little bit, I'm not sure the culture is, is going to change. I think that the internet is actually hurting us. You oh, know, because we're, we're interacting less with each other yes. than 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 before the internet. You know, you're in the bus, you're on the bus, and you know, you're you're not paying attention to anyone or or reading the paper or talking to anyone. You're just on your phone playing playing Candy Crush. Mm. So, I think I think it's going to be hard for us to shift when we have this tool in our hands of the internet and and the mobile phone that's taking us away from people as opposed to encouraging us to interact with people. I absolutely agree, Charles. And I think that it's such a shame that the very basic art of saying hello and mm. good morning is being lost. I agree. You know, and this social connection, often I'm in a restaurant and I look at the table beside me and all four people at the table are on their phones. <laughs> I remember once being at a restaurant uh, several years ago and there was two people and they were eating uh, together and they were both on their phone and so I, I finally reached over to them and I, and I said excuse me for asking but you know how come you're not talking you're just both on your phone said, oh well it's our first date and we're just talking you know by texting each other and I just thought that was weird that's uh, crazy that made no sense to me and then you yeah. know I'm leaving you know in a few days on a business trip and the hotel that is uh, where we're going to be staying has now sent me three emails trying to get me to download the key to my room on my cell phone so that I don't have to speak to anyone when I get to the hotel. And it's like, I would, I don't have a problem speaking to someone at the front desk and getting my key. Thank you very much. Absolutely. You learn so much more about yeah. the place you're in or the people you're with if you actually speak to them. And that sounds so basic and simple, but I believe truly that we're losing that ability. We are. We are. How I mean, I can't imagine going on a first date and communicating by text with the person immediately <laughs> across the no table from me. It makes no sense to me. But what's interesting is that, you know, there's a generation where that just feels logical to them because they don't know anything else. I mean, when I speak to my nephews who are, you know, nine and 12, they've only ever lived in the internet era. And so, you know, when I kind of talk to them about what it was like before the internet, they, they look at me like I have three heads, like they, they just can't oh. comprehend. I know, I know. My children are the same way. And I don't, I can't comprehend their <laughs> world. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I completely agree. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are chuckling along with us thinking the same thing. And this is why we need to underline the importance of tradition and this art of service that we can keep this alive, our ability to socialize alive. It's really important. I think the best place to start, though, would really be at the, the dinner table at home, the kitchen yeah. table with the family. And, you know, I get it. We all have busy lives and we're all running in different directions. But I think if we could just start to just have a family dinner where we put the phones down at the table and just talk about your day or talk about what's on your mind, 
I think would be a great way to start. And, you know, my rule of thumb really is, unless you're a doctor who's about to be called into emergency brain surgery or whatever, there's really no need for you to have your phone at the table. I'm in full agreement, full agreement. No. Anybody listening who's not doing that, <laughs> let's start right now. Start today. <laughs> the revolution has begun. The revolution has begun. That, I'm going to hashtag this episode with that. Charles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so great. I really enjoyed your book, The Butler Speaks. I know Lauren did too. There is a great deal of historical background about the tradition of service. And you provided us a little glimpse into the management of those stately homes of old, like we were speaking of in yep. Britain and whatnot. And it makes us think of Downton Abbey. Did you yes. watch the series, Charles? I did. And, you know, I was fascinated by the series. I found, and in fact, I found it a little bit disappointing as the series progressed that we spent less time downstairs and more time upstairs because I personally found downstairs more interesting so than upstairs. <laughs> Me too. It was amazing. The, you know what I loved was that, and I think you mentioned it in your book too, the call bell system. Yes. Yes. That is fascinating. I wish I had one in my house today, frankly. When I was renovating my, my house in the country, I, I I threatened to put a call bell system in. <laughs> <laughs> and although I thought it would be quite nice, because I actually do have a butler pantry between my kitchen and my dining room. But then I thought, you know, that's great. I'll, I'll ring the bell from somewhere in the house, but no one's going to come. So <laughs> well, that's the problem. You need someone who's going to answer that bell. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't mean to digress, but did you know that the call bells, you know, there used to be people where that was their only profession and they would uh, install elaborate call bell systems in households, in the country houses and so on, in the city houses of the rich and famous people. You're and kidding. so that was their profession. That was their business. That was their business. Was well, I can imagine it was quite an extensive thing to do. Well, because you're running cables throughout yeah. the whole house, you know, so yeah. it was hard. It's like installing internet today, <laughs> right? It might be the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So did you find yourself critical of anything that you saw downstairs at, at Downton Abbey? I think to, to their defense, I think that they did it really well. I think okay. that they had someone on staff who was really good at making sure that they were doing things correctly. And it was pretty correct for the time. Uh, yeah. it, I think I think sometimes it was actually easier or in, the, in, the, in the program than it was in real life. In real life, I think it was still much harder than what we see. But I think it was pretty accurate. And, and when I speak to other butlers and, and other professionals, we all traditionally feel the same way. Do you? Oh, that's really interesting to know. And good to know that you can kind of rely on what you're seeing there. And it's not yeah. too I much mean, of a glamorization. I think, I think the most important thing, though, to remember is it's not a documentary. It is still fiction. Right. And so that gives creative license to be able to change things. So, you know, I think sometimes people look at movies or television programs or whatever too much as as a documentary, as opposed to for entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. And if people really want to read into it a little bit more, I highly recommend your book because Thanks. it has these beautiful little inserts that really outline the history behind some of the service. Well, I agree with you. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, Charles, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today i'm so grateful thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us thank you very much to the both of you if you would like to learn more you can follow charles on instagram at at charles.v.butler 
or at www.charlesmcpherson.com. We will include these links as well as where you can find his books in our show notes. Thanks again, Charles. Be well. Thank you very much and my best to everyone. Interest in the history and contemporary condition of domestic workers is becoming increasingly popular, and it seems that the life of the downstairs worker is increasingly being portrayed in really a more glamorous fashion. Take, for example, one of your favorite shows, Harris, Below Deck. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Instead of an English country house, this reality show is set on a yacht with hip young staff who are responsible for catering to the needs of the people who have paid big money to charter the boat. It is a new modern interpretation that highlights the clear separation between the lives of the guests above deck and the domestic staff who live in a totally different life below deck. Viewers get a fly-on-the-wall perspective into what it is like to be a member of the crew catering to the whims of the clients and the drama that almost always ensues. Captain Lee Rosbach has said, it's really Downton Abbey on the water. It totally is. I actually inquired about being a guest on that show. An upstairs guest. You are nuts, Harris. I know, I know. <laughs> I'd watch that episode for sure. It certainly is entertaining, but... You know, I kind of find that all the drama is a little stressful to watch personally for me. Yeah. I imagine it would be difficult enough taking care of the needs of these very particular and high maintenance customers. Absolutely. It can't be easy, especially when on your off hours, you're sharing a tiny cabin with your workmates who you may or may not like. Yeah. And and when you watch this show, does it make working on the yacht appear like an attractive position to hold? Like, would you do it? I think it does glamorize it for sure. I think when I was a young gal, I could have managed that work. The travel and the new vistas would have appealed to me. And I've worked in fine restaurants as well as luxury real estate. So catering to the well-heeled wouldn't be anything new. But at my age... I think I'm too opinionated and bossy in my own right. (laughs) Me too. I wonder if Below Deck got a little inspiration from the 70s hit show Love Boat. Yeah. Yeah, you must have watched it, right? Of course. Yeah. The cruise ship staff were an important part of the plot of each weekly episode. Each week, the storyline involved fresh drama. Oh my gosh, the drama. Captain Steubing, all the ladies loved him. (laughs) Yeah, remember Julie? She was the business. And I actually personally loved her because in person, we both shared the same name. Ah. This distinction between the haves and the haves to serve is also evident in hotels as well. Yeah, in most high-end and luxury environments, there is a clear and definite divide between clients and staff. Mm -hmm. I did read that in hotels, however, the term upstairs-downstairs refers to something a little different. Apparently, it references the highly paid hotel staff compared to the lower rungs on the payroll. Wow, I didn't know that. But I did know that there was a hierarchy in the downstairs world in the days of old. Right. Yeah, a more contemporary take on domestic service is the very realistic portrayal of the domestic worker depicted in Stephanie Land's book, Made. She presents real-life stories of working poor, including her own experience living in America, overworked and pursuing the American dream, yet living under the poverty line and raising a child on her own at the same time. Yeah, I'm reading that book right now, actually. The issue of the working poor in the service industry is very top of mind, certainly here in North America, but worldwide too. It's a big problem in the restaurant industry as well. It's well known that restaurant staff are often terribly overworked and underpaid. 
Having worked in the restaurant industry, I would say there is definitely a hierarchy there too. Instead of upstairs, downstairs, you have the front of house, which mixes with the guests, the maitre d' or the hostess, even the servers, and the back of house, which prepares the food, washes the dishes, and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the way staff are expected to float back and forth, essentially be- being the bridge between the kitchen staff and the customers. And I remember those days so clearly. I actually still dream about it. Oh, do you? <laughs> you do? Serving? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Table one, table two, table six, table you- 10. There's people waiting at table 12. I think you suffered <laughs> trauma, Walker. So do you remember those days fondly or not so fondly then? (laughs) Well, yeah, not so fondly. My experience certainly gives me the ability to empathize with servers now. I remember that when the kitchen was being slammed with orders, which were pouring in all at once, we would refer to it as being in the weeds. Um, It's a pretty common term. If the kitchen was really slow, you know, it was up to us to diplomatically explain the delay to our tables. And of course, customers often consider the efficiency of the kitchen when they're deciding what tip that they want to leave you. Yeah, often to the detriment of the server. Exactly. It can also go squirrely when the guest doesn't like their food. For example, they find that the dish is too salty and you're expected to take it back to the kitchen to have them remake it. And sometimes the dish is exactly how the chef had intended, but it just simply isn't to the taste of the customer. And then the chef sometimes will get their nose at a joint. I've had to beg with the kitchen to fix it quickly so that guest happiness can be salvaged. Yeah, it's not a nice position to be in. And we both know that chefs can be a little temperamental at times. Uh, Yeah, that's a good word for it. Yeah. A great manager or maybe even the restaurant owner on the premises can make all the difference in the world in softening a disgruntled customer. Or a great hostess. That was my role for quite some time, soothing all the tempers front of house and back of house. Our manager never hit the floor, but we preferred it that way. Not all employers are great, right? We all have our own horror stories. Oh, that's for sure. I've certainly had my fair share of scary and less than fair employers over the years and even some sexual harassment by employers. That's absolutely horrible, Walker, and I'm really sad to hear that. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon. But when you say scary, are you talking about a Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada kind of scary? Oh, yes, I would say so. One boss I had, again, in a restaurant was so scary. Every time I had to go for a shift, my stomach would get in knots. I literally would get physically ill. She would scream at me in front of the customers. Oh, my gosh. That's ridiculous. bad. That sounds like a really toxic environment. I would say that most of my employers have been okay The worst, though, had to have been when I worked at this small clothing retail shop in my last year of high school. She would always make really demeaning comments to me about my appearance, like saying my hair was messy. One time she said, we should make you wear a brush around your neck. Nice. I know. I think some employers think they can treat you any way they want if you're young, female, and working for minimum wage. Yeah, I think you're right. Some employees find their revenge, though, on these nasty employers. I've read a few stories. One employee who had a terrible boss retaliated by playing a prank. And what they did is they hid a little gadget in their boss's office that made the sound 
that your phone makes when it's dying. So this gadget made this bleep randomly. And the boss went mad trying to find out where the sound was coming from. She even replaced her phone twice and even replaced her computer. Take a guess where this gadget was hidden. I have no idea. (laughs) The plant? I have no idea. Inside the computer monitor. Holy moly, that is pretty (laughs) intense, man. How did they even do that? I have absolutely no idea. Now, I did read another story which took it to a whole new level about an employee who was so fed up with their boss stealing their snacks that they decided that they were going to leave a snack for themselves, a special brownie Uh with a name on it. So after their boss ate the brownie as they expected them to, they made an anonymous suggestion that a targeted drug test was required, which eventually brought about their boss's resignation at the end of the week. Oh my God, that's so harsh. Is that true? Uh, I'm assuming so. Oh, oh my God, all because somebody was eating their snacks? I know. Harris, I swear, I will never come between you and your afternoon snack. Yeah, well, you know what? To be totally honest, Walker, that is wise. You know how much I love my snacks. And these are kind of like on the light side, these situations. But there are so many people who work in truly abusive environments Working for an abusive boss can be extremely traumatic. Lawyer Kenneth Krupat notes that a victim in these circumstances feels vulnerable and dependent and often stays in the relationship. It's hard to leave when you're financially reliant on that job. It leaves you with very few options. Yeah, I was shocked to read in Newsweek, which reported the results of a study by the think tank Rand Corporation. And this was just recently, I think it was in the summertime. The study stated that nearly one in five American workers says they face a hostile or threatening environment at work, while over half report to being exposed to unpleasant and potentially hazardous working conditions. Honestly, that's terrible. In this day and age, it is so truly ugly when people take advantage of others. Yeah, I I realize, I fully realize I was privileged to be able to be in a position where I could walk away from those toxic work environments yeah. when they were happening. There are too many people though in this world who simply cannot walk away from employment that is abusive and unsafe because they need to support themselves. They need to support their families. Absolutely way too many people in these circumstances. For instance, a recent article by Megan Mohan, written for the BBC, exposes the seven-day week which maids must work for Qatar's ruling classes. One maid interviewed reported working from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. seven days a week without one day off since she started 18 months prior. In the case of this particular maid, her employer also keeps her passport, limiting her ability to leave And apparently this is not an uncommon practice. It makes me also think of recent reports of poor and sometimes lethal working conditions of migrant workers in Qatar, particularly leading up to the World Cup. Officials there have stated that 37 workers have lost their lives. But later, the number quoted by the World Cup chief, Hassan Al-Thawadi, in an interview with Pierce Morgan, was reported at four to 500 people. Some believe it to be even higher than that. Yeah, I've been following that story as well. The Guardian reported 6,500 migrant workers from India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka have died since December 2010 when Qatar won the right to host the World Cup. That breaks my heart. And 
and frankly makes me really angry because we all benefit, you know, if you're a football fan from watching those international games, it's unacceptable. We're so fortunate in North America to have established regulations that contribute to working conditions that are free from harassment, unsafe practices and the like. Though, let's be real, we know it still continues. Mm -hmm. Organizations such as the International Labor Organization or Human Rights Watch and so many other international and local advocacy groups all work tirelessly towards improved worker rights. Yeah, we can only hope that people find their humanity and begin to, you know, treat other people as they would want themselves to be treated. I know, so simple. You got that right, Walker. Domestic service is a tradition that seems to extend into the disappearing midst of time. It is well known that the elite of ancient civilizations retained domestic servants, often slaves, captured during conquest. More recently, however, the relationship between master and mistress and servant has been glamorized through popular media romanticizing the class divide that exists within the homes of the wealthy. The professional domestic industry is one that adheres to strict rules of etiquette and respects the rights of the employed. There is, however, the grim reality that many domestic workers are vastly underpaid and mistreated. It's lovely to disappear into the romance of the rarefied world of very privileged, but it is also too important to acknowledge and respect those who work tirelessly to support it. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. Follow us each week as we continue the conversation.